This is kind of cool, I think, last words of the Bible. It's actually from Jesus, which is a little strange if you think about it because it's not like one of the Gospels where it's recording all of Jesus' teaching and ministry. But Jesus appears after he's been crucified, after he's been resurrected from the dead, and after he actually ascended into heaven, he appears to one of his followers named John. And John sees Jesus in a whole new light, a whole different kind of way that he did not see Jesus when he was walking by him day by day here on earth. He sees him in glory and wonder and honor and might. Seeing him, I would say, for who he truly is. And here's what Jesus tells him. The last words of the Bible. I am coming soon. Isn't that awesome? I also think it's weird because he said it 2,000 years ago. And sometimes I don't think Jesus has the same definition as soon as I do. Agreed? But he puts it out there. I mean, I'll tell you, I got, I got to hand it to Jesus. He, he's, he's not afraid to put himself out there. He will put himself out there and say some of the most outlandish, weirdest things. And you're like, dude, what? Or no, that can't be. You try to qualify Jesus. You try to shave things around the edges of Jesus. You try to like make sense of Jesus. And a lot of times it's like we're almost trying to rescue Jesus from Jesus. Like, did he really say that? He doesn't care. Because when you're the author of truth and the author of life, you know what you're talking about. And you're like, no, I'm right. You're wrong. Get with the program. I'm coming soon. I am coming soon. And what he does is he invites us to live that way. He invites us, even though it's 2,000 years later, and I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick and tired of waiting. I'm kind of bored of waiting. I'm kind of just like, I don't really think it's happening kind of waiting. You know what I mean? He invites me to live that way nonetheless. I am coming soon. That's kind of like the weird idea that I want to talk to you about today. In the last week, we talked about this weird idea that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, and when he did, it was far more than just like this guy going up, as weird as that is and as cool as that is, but it was nothing short of Jesus taking the throne of heaven. Jesus going up to take that throne that God is seated upon to rule over the heavens and the earth. And where it's going to go today, if you stick with me, is to the next logical place that he isn't staying there forever. That he didn't go there to say, okay, I'm done with this earth thing. But no, I'm coming again, or as he puts it, I am coming soon. I think this defies a lot of, you know, if I could put it this way, common sense wisdom that, that people have. I don't think most people Assume anyone is coming. Anything is coming. It's an assumption that I think no one is coming into the world and the world is really going nowhere. You know, at most, I think people look at life and not just their own life, but life in the grand scheme, the universe in the grand scheme. And don't really think that it has an agenda at all, a destiny, if you will. It's just kind of here. It just kind of goes on. Someday I'll die. Other people will be born. Someday they'll die. It'll just go on until at some distant date, 
this whole operation just kind of runs out of steam. Call it entropy. Maybe it'll be something else. It's just going to kind of fizzle out someday. And that'll be it for eternity. Well, ain't that kind of cheery? But I think there's something in that. Something we need to pay attention to. Because I meet a lot of people who have that kind of perspective. Oh, maybe they don't articulate it the same way I just did, but just kind of at this gut feel. They don't really think of the universe having a purpose. Life is having a purpose greater than just their own meaning that they bring to it. They don't see it as part of a grander story. Are you following? And so when they really stop to contemplate it, well, it isn't that cheery. In fact, it's kind of depressing. It leads people to kind of just wonder, what's the point of it all? Why even bother? Why even try? It brings a certain sense of futility for some people. For others I meet, it brings a certain sense of fear. Because the unknown quotient to it all as at some level scary. And so life becomes about really distancing yourself and distracting yourself from, from the bigger thoughts, the bigger questions, the bigger pictures. Because anytime I force myself to think about it or find myself brought into it, it just kind of riles up a very low-key anxiety that I can't find resolution to. Or I don't know what to do with. This line of thinking is nothing new. It has pervaded human history in one form or another for century upon century, though certainly I think is a prevailing form of thinking for many people today. And it's into that line of thinking that Jesus has something very weird to say. I am coming soon. Because Christians have a weird idea, a different idea. Jesus didn't see the universe as something that just exists in its own right. He saw it as something that exists within a greater and grander purpose. Now, this has implications for each of us personally. It has a small scale to it. That everyone who's a part of this universe, every single life, fits in in some way to this greater and grander purpose. But it also has a very large-scale point of view that the very thing that we call life itself, the universe itself, existence itself, also is part of a greater story, that this is going somewhere. There's a purpose to it, a destiny, that it is not just aimlessly and randomly floating along but as part of a greater narrative with a greater purpose and design, which is where I'm going to get a little Greek on you here today. It has what the New Testament will call a telos. You give me that word on your lips here this morning? It's not about telling Something, though if you told people about the telos, 
you'd be on good ground. Here's what it means. Completion. Finished. Goal. Maturity. The wholeness that finally comes about. An end point by which things have finally found their fruition and are accomplished. This is the word that Jesus will use, another final word. But the final words he spoke before he died while he was hanging on the cross. What does Jesus say? Some of you who who are familiar with the Christian story, you know it. Three words, actually, if I put it that way. It is which when he said it doesn't just mean, oh, it's done now. Like, oh, I'm finally beyond that. No, 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 like, like uh, my life has come to an end. No, the goal has been accomplished. We have come to completion. To telestai, he says, which is just a derivation of this word that I'm showing you here today. Telos. Jesus' point of view on your life and on the universe is that it does have a purpose. It does have a goal. And that goal and purpose is intricately woven in to God's grander and greater purposes. That life and the universe as we know it is going somewhere. And that somewhere it is going is a goal set by God. Are you with me? And so taking this entire biblical field of vision, these early Christians summed it up in this little line in an ancient creed. From thence. Ain't that a good word? We need more thencing in our lives, I think. What's it mean? From then and there. From that place, what place? Well, heaven. Why do we know heaven? Because Jesus ascended into heaven. From the place where Jesus is now, from heaven, from then and there, at that time when he decides that the completion is here, from thence he will come, Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Or as the Nicene Creed will put it. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. He says, I'm coming soon and I'm coming to do that. I'm coming soon. I'm coming to bring this thing to fruition, fulfillment, and completion. I'm coming to tell us this sucker because God has put a target on the wall and I'm going to tell you this, God doesn't miss. And that arrow of history might bobble and flow in weird routes throughout the timeline that we know, but in the end, that target, that arrow is going to stick. Dead on bullseye to where God is bringing this thing. That's what tell us. That's what this line, that's what it's all about. That is what Jesus is saying when he goes, I am coming soon. It's not just, hey guys, I'm here. No, let's finish this thing. 
Can I ask you, does that bring you hope? Does that bring you, is, is that good news? That God not only wants, but is going to finish this thing? Oh my gosh, I think of like those Psalms, you know? Those Psalms, aren't they great? Like, like Psalm 6, where, where the brother's just crying out, or maybe it's a sister, I don't know, but how long, oh Lord? How long? Do you know what that is? That's a cry for telos. That's a cry that says, get me to the target because I am dying here. Maybe literally. Maybe metaphorically. But I'm dying here. And Lord, without you, my arrow's hitting the dirt. Bring it to the target. Bring it to completion. Bring it to fruition. Bring it as part of your greater story to that. Lord, look at this world around. Have you ever had these cries? I love these cries of the Psalms. Lord, where is your justice? Can I put it in our words? Why don't you do something? Have you ever cried that out when you see this world around? A broken, evil, hard, suffering world. God, just do something. Has it ever gotten personal? When you've been on the recipient end, oh, Lord, save me. And I'm not talking about forgiving my sins. I'm talking rescue me out of this. I love the Psalms that take it to the next level. Like Psalm 69, if my memory is serving me right, where, where the guy's just going off. He's like, and Lord, not only save me, but break their backs, snap their necks, rub their noses in the ground, trample upon them. Because when you are being beaten down by someone who is tormenting you or something, don't you want to see more than anything that it gets its due? Come on, be honest here. You can be real at Fellowship of Faith, Right? Don't you want to see vindication? Well, that's what it says. He will come again with glory. To do what? To do that. To judge. The living. And the dead. I think of those psalms. Why do the wicked prosper? They go to their graves fat, happy, well-fed. Nothing bad comes to them in life. And yet the person who tries to seek you, O oh Lord, their life is marked by suffering and struggle, poverty and disease. They both go to the grave. Where is their vindication? What was the point of it all? Well, he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Isn't that good news? Isn't that cool? Isn't that something worth hoping to? Except that I think for a lot of you, it's not something that sounds like good news. I don't think it is something that sounds like it's worth hoping for. Because I think you hear the word judge and you're like, oh, not for me. Who of you wants to be judged by God? Could you raise your hand, please? Yeah, are you a little afraid that even if you like do that, it's like, oh no, he's going to do it, you know? Judgment has a very bad connotation for us, doesn't it? Isn't judgment a bad word? Like, like we, we, we teach our kids not to use two kinds of words, four-letter words and then the word judgment, right? When we read about judgment in the Bible, I think most of us have a knee-jerk reaction that this is a bad thing. We don't want to be judged by God. We don't want God's judgment. We don't want God to judge, period. And so maybe you're reading a line like this going, dude, you're hopped up on something, but it isn't what's right because that does not sound like a good thing. 
You read that he will come with glory to judge both the living and the dead and it does not give you hope, it gives you fear. It does not create in you anticipation, but it creates in you aversion. Instead, which of you wants to be viewed as judgmental? Just means someone who judges, right? We think of passages, judge not, lest ye be judged. We, of course, assume that it means condemnation, but look, let me reprogram something here today. And I think this is going to help you navigate the Bible and the way of God more clearly. When the Bible talks about judgment, it does not automatically mean it's a bad thing. Let me say it again. When the Bible talks about judgment, it does not automatically mean it's a bad thing. It can be a good thing or a bad thing. Only context will tell. And I'm not just talking biblical context, I'm talking your life's context too. Let me read a passage for you here today. It's a, kind of like a classic Christmas passage. And by that I mean it's not like Isaiah wrote this at Christmas time because Isaiah lived 750 years before Christmas. But, but churches like to read it at Christmas. It's from Isaiah 11. It's a little bit longer, stick with me. But it's so cool. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was King David's father. And if you have a shoot coming up from a stump, what you have to imagine is a once mighty great tree. You ever see like one of those 200-year-old oaks that's been cut down and all that remains is a stump? And that once mighty, beautiful, wonderful thing to behold is now nothing but something dead, destroyed, Ruined. But what does Isaiah say? A shoot will come up. From David's line, from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, Kian, this one is going to come, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him a spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of power a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. It goes on to then describe the target, the picture of what his judgment will bring. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters will cover the sea. And when does that happen? 
when that one from the line of Jesse comes to judge the living and the dead. It talked a lot about judgment in that passage, didn't it? How he's going to judge, not by what he sees or hears, not swayed, not limited in perspective. No, but with righteousness he will judge. With justice he will judge. Did you notice how there was bad news sounding things in it? What, he will slay the wicked with the, 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 the rod of his mouth? Did you catch that in there? But did you also catch that the person who's proclaiming this seemed to think that was a good thing? Because he knew full well what it's like to suffer in a world that's spiraling out of control. Victimized and tyrannized by the forces of this world that seek to oppress, crying out, how long, O Lord? Release the arrow, may it hit the target. Come soon and judge. Because I need you, Lord. And I'm dying without you, make no mistake. Sometimes when the Bible talks about judgment, it is a good thing. Most of us, especially Protestants, I think of, our, think of ourselves, I, I suspect, in relationship to God as defendants before a judge in a criminal case. That we are being accused of crimes before God and must give defense. And there's a place for that, mind you, that I'll get to momentarily. But often what you find in the Bible is something different. You find plaintiffs coming before God in a civil case. What if you looked at judgments not so much as you being on the hot seat as a defendant in a criminal case before God, but a plaintiff before, instead coming before a judge pleading your case for justice and vindication. If you can understand that, you can start to understand the hope in a phrase like this. Lord, come and set all things right. Lord, come and right all wrongs. Lord, come and make it right. And I'll tell you, do you know what God's justice is? God's justice is this. That God is hell-bent. Or maybe I should say heaven-bent. On setting all wrongs right. In this world. Of course, sometimes. We find ourselves as the perpetrators of those wrongs. Don't we? Sometimes, even if we don't see the direct catastrophe we breed in life, we know that our lives are guilty of being out of line with God's great arrow shot of history and destiny. Sometimes we do realize we do deserve God's judgment because God will come and judge the living and the dead setting wrongs to right. 
but also showing the wrongs of those who thought they could avoid their life choice. Jesus will say that all of our lives will be exposed. They'll be laid bare when he comes again. That all the things that we do in private, all the things that we do in secret, all the things that we thought, thank God, it went unnoticed. All the things that we go, oh, I'm so glad I got away from that, you know. I'm so glad I got away on that one. That before the Lord and the angels in heaven, that all things will be laid bare. What would it mean to live your life in such a way that everyone could see what you're doing at all times? Because I tell you, the day's going to come when like, heaven's going to see everything that you did. That isn't too cool, is it? But all our lives will be laid bare. And so believe me when I say that I can tell you standing up here firsthand today that while I am someone who yearns and hopes for Christ's coming again, I simultaneously understand what it is to fear judgment of the living and the dead. And maybe there's something even healthy and good in that fear. But it does circle me back around to this. What is God waiting for? Because if Jesus says he is coming soon, then why don't you actually do what you said? And I have the answer to that here for you today. It is not a metaphysical mystery. It is not something that is beyond the scope of revelation or human vision. It is simple and it is clear. Why doesn't God come soon? Because God does not want to condemn anybody. This is the message of the Bible, beginning to end, that God is a terribly, wonderfully, horribly patient God, tolerating and putting up with the sins of this world, which is really nothing more than saying the evil and suffering and horrors of this world, because even at its worst form, God does not want to condemn anybody. Can I ask, how do you feel about that? Because I'll tell you, I'm a little conflicted. I bet you, like many people, really kind of want to see some people get their do and get it now. And I'm not just talking the personal petty rivals or the slights and the hurts. I'm not trying to undermine that. Those can hurt deep. But you look at what people do in this world and the horror that they wreak on other people. And you're like, God, why do you allow this to continue? And God's like, it's simple. I don't want to condemn that person. But Lord, your people are suffering, but I don't want to condemn that person. But Lord, evil has been allowed to endure, but I don't want to condemn that person. I don't know how I feel about that until I put myself in the shoes of that person and going, wow, 
as much as I want that person condemned, would I also invite God to condemn me? Do I think that my life is so good, so on target, that I shouldn't also be judged? It's conflicting, isn't it? Here's what the Apostle Peter writes. But do not forget one thing, friends, dear friends, sorry, I'm skipping the good stuff. (laughs) But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Now, no matter what you have been groomed to believe, what he is not talking about is creation and evolution here. He's talking about his patience. That when you talk about God's patience, soon is like a thousand years, right? Coming soon has a different definition. For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Really? To which Peter then says, as some understand slowness. No. He is patient with you. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting who? Anyone to perish. The kid who bullied me in middle school that still scars me to this day, though I'm 60 years old, He doesn't want him to perish? No. That bad boss, he doesn't want that bad boss to perish? Is that bad boss part of anyone? Yes, he is, and no, he doesn't want him to perish. Are you with me? Let's give some stakes. Who are the horrible people of this world? You're looking at one of them right now, but I mean the other horrible people of this world, right? Who are the worst people of this world? You know who comes to mind, yeah. I mean, come on, it's almost a cliche. Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden. Of course, it's always people on the other side of the national divide that are the worst of this world, right? God doesn't want them to perish? No. God is patient with them despite the horrors that they unleash? Yes. That's what Peter has to say. Are you conflicted about it? I hope so. And if you are, welcome to the scandal of grace. That for God, grace is not a cliche. And grace is not for good people. That God does not want anyone to perish. But everyone, including the worst of the worst of the worst. To come to repentance. And thanks be to God the day that I realize that that includes me. This is good news. That God will come to set all things right, and that is good news. But God does not want to condemn anybody. And so he is patient with the sin and evil people of this world, and that includes me. And for me, I find that 
to be wonderfully good news as well because it's an invitation. It's an invitation to the worst of the worst to you, the baddest of the bad of you, the most rotten to the core and soul of you, those who have reaped a harvest of nothing but pain and destruction in your wake, that God is patient with you and invites you to throw yourself on his mercy so that when the day of setting all things right comes about, your righteousness is not of your own, but from the one who gives it to you when you throw yourself on his mercy to a sinner like me. That's horrible, wonderful, good news. I had a seminary professor. His name was Lewis Brighton. He has since gone home to be with the Lord. There's a lot of professors that I've gotten to know over the course of my years. But this guy was like, this guy was like friends with Jesus. You know what I mean? Not just in the cliche way. It's like this, this was a man who knew the Lord. And you could just tell it almost like, it was almost like Moses who like glowed because of being in the Lord's presence and was called a friend of Yahweh. It's like, I think this man spent like real time in Yahweh's living room on a daily basis. And it just rubbed off on him. And he just glowed. I remember he had shock white hair. It was like something almost out of the book of Revelation. He was actually a Revelation scholar, which I found ironic in that. I think if you study the book of Revelation, that has to happen to your hair. This man with shock white hair who would tell us stories about serving in World War II and being on a boat and, 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 and almost being lost at sea. And, and, and just, just the stories that he would tell about a man who saw the horrors of this world with the hope set before him of the target, the telos, that God had set on the wall. And I remember when he would talk about stuff like this, when he would comment on stuff like this, when he would put himself in the shoes of these psalmists who would cry out these things like, how long, O oh Lord? Vindicate, O oh God. Damn them to hell. Psalms words. Not mine. And he would talk about the pain and the suffering and the evil and those who perpetrated it in this world. And he would say, you know what I do? I pray like this. Lord, that you would damn them to hell. And that's how he would say it. He would just... I'm afraid to pray like that. I mean, that's got like... I mean, believe me, in my heart, there's a lot of people I wish would like get crushed or suffer, right? But to pray, Lord, damn him to hell, but he would pray like that. Lord, that you would damn him to hell because he wasn't afraid to be honest about what he truly felt before God. But then he would immediately say this, but oh Lord, that they would repent first. And there's something powerful that I've found since that time and that dichotomy. I feel like I learned from him the substance of what this means. Oh Lord, come and set all things right and all of its array 
Oh, but oh Lord, that they would repent first. Which is why Jesus says, do not delay. Live in such a way as though he is coming soon. Dare to take him at his word and do not delay. For the heaven-bent God of the universe is coming to bring it to its telos. Don't wait until that day to get right with God. Throw yourself on his mercy today. So let's pray. We come before you, O Lord, hopefully challenged, hopefully convicted, hopefully inspired, and hopefully broken before your great, weird, wonderful word who has a way of, which has a way of getting in our souls and our minds. Lord, stand starkly in the face of the expectations and assumptions of this world to give us a different hope of a telos to come. May we live, Lord, as though you are, in fact, coming soon. And Lord, may we not be afraid to cry out for it. But Lord, in its midst, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our loved ones. We pray for our enemies. That you would move in them, God, to bring them to repentance. That this world would be a world of people marked by people calling on your name. From the most holy of us to the most sinful of us. From those most near to you, from those most far from you. To the most together, to the most broken Lord. Here are prayers on behalf of this world, on behalf of our family and friends, our neighbors and our enemies. But Lord, hear us today on behalf of ourselves. I pray for the people gathered here who are afraid of you, that they would dare to cry out to your name and see that you are a good and gracious God. I pray for the person here run down and beaten by life. That they would find that hope within you. I pray for the person here who has grown cold and bored in the waiting for renewed zeal. I pray, God, that you would have mercy on a sinner like me so that this day to come is a day of anticipation and hope. not judgment and fear. The hope that the powers of this world in you have no hold on me. Amen. So let's rise. And may he who is coming to judge the living and the dead set you free in hope in victory through the forgiveness he gives 
may you come to him in repentance. May you throw yourself upon him. May you live under his name. And may you keep your eyes set on what is to come. No matter what you face, the victory and vindication in Jesus' name.